Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And it's still summer, but today we'll be talking about a lot of the summer movies that came out. We still have a lot coming in August. Maybe we'll touch on some of those and what we want to see. But to do that, we are welcoming back one of our favorite guests, Ryan, man of the people, Lamb. Welcome back. Thanks for coming. Hi, Nick. Hi, Sophia. I'm so excited to be back. I got to say, heartbreak really does feel good in a place like this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Ryan. Well, it's been exactly a year since we had you back last to play our best popular Oscar game focusing on the 2000s. I feel like today we might not have as much animosity as we did on that episode, but stay tuned. (laughs) We will see when we get into some of these movies, but yeah, we're so happy to have you back. And I'm just eager to, I think, hear your thoughts on the box office, what phase four of Marvel feels like for you, everything. Well, I have good news. I have lots of thoughts I'm happy to share. Good. So today for our episode, we will get into the state of the box office, how we feel about summer movies as a whole. We'll talk about Top Gun Maverick, which we haven't talked about yet, Elvis, Lightyear, Marcel the Shell with Shoes On, so many different movies. So let's get started right away, just in general. How do you guys feel about movies this summer so up to this point in the year how have you really felt and how movies are doing at the box office i think we've seen some good numbers come in which is exciting to me well i was actually uh, looking at box office numbers recently and obviously things are are quite a bit up compared to the last few years uh, with all the pandemic caused people to start watching movies at home and forego trips to the movie theater so obviously good news compared to 2020 and 2021 Um, But I did see that domestic box office is still down 30% through the end of July compared to 2019. So I think while we're trending up, we're definitely still not back to that pre-pandemic norm. That's important because I think we're all kind of like, yay, the box office is back to normal. It's so exciting. All these people are going back to theaters, but it's still like not quite at that place yet. And I think I'm fearful for what it will take to get back to that place or if we can get there. I think the summer is really key because we've had so many movies do very well and like break their own records for like types of genres that they're in or for non-franchise films. So I think that's all good news. There's definitely some movies that are really carrying the water for the movie industry right now. Like, uh, for instance, Top Gun, yeah. which I think grossed over a billion dollars worldwide. Um, which obviously is a pretty significant contribution to the box office for the year. Mm -hmm. If Top Gun wasn't there, I think it would be a a lot uglier of a year. And that wasn't even a guarantee. No. I I think, you know, in retrospect, Tom Cruise, who is already like Hollywood's golden boy, looks like a complete genius in terms of holding back and and forcing the studio um, to release Top Gun Maverick theatrically and not letting it go to streaming like so many other movies went to streaming during the pandemic. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, Christopher Nolan. Tom Cruise saved the movie industry. Yikes. (laughs) For now. Yeah, I think while it's different, we're still seeing a lot of those same movies come out on top. Like if we were to continue to play that popular Oscar game, I think we would have like a similar type of movie to have to choose from and struggle to have to choose from. Like as of recording, we have Top Gun, Doctor Strange, Jurassic World Dominion, The Batman, and Minions, The Rise of Gru. 
in the top five for worldwide box office. And then those are the same domestically as well, which is kind of surprising, but Thor is still new. I think that'll get up there fairly quickly. I mean, to me, that seems like a pre-pandemic normality. And that's not something I really ever look towards to be like, okay, I got to see these five movies. So I'm kind of in the same place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would say mentally, I am in that place where I'm just like, okay, like, these are the movies that I can count on to do really well. They're all IP franchise. We can always count on Marvel movies to open really well. But yeah, I think as we talk through some of these movies, we'll dig into specifics and what we think that that means. But before we get into Top Gun Maverick, we're not talking about everything everywhere all at once today. But I will point out that this movie has crossed the $100 million mark, which Mm -hmm. is very exciting for an original story for an A24 movie. And it's just going to continue making money because it's still in theaters. And they just re-released a new version with additional commentary. So I think that that in itself is exciting for the box office, but it's just, I mean, it's just a low number in comparison to these IP juggernauts that everyone sees no matter what. And that's a quick turnaround for a re-release. I was kind of shocked to read that and like they didn't bring it back in October. I feel like we mentioned this on the pod Mm -hmm. a few months ago because that would really help with awards and that re-release is maybe too early for that. But I think to add more content and to try to bring in more of that audience that maybe didn't get to see it or in areas that didn't initially show it is exciting. And that is really good for A24. Hopefully they can use some of that earning into its award season releases. And we've heard about some of those, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode with the festivals that we've heard about. The real movie time is coming this fall. (laughs) Sorry, Ryan. (laughs) Depends on what movies you're looking forward to. (laughs) Okay, well, let's just get into Top Gun Maverick, the movie that we waited over a thousand days for from its first announcement that it was going to be coming out. And after production delays and then... The pandemic, of course. Paramount was adamant, and I think specifically, too, Tom Cruise was adamant in getting this movie in theaters, and it sure paid off. Right now, at the time of recording, we're at a $1.2 billion worldwide gross. It passed Avengers Endgame and became the ninth highest grossing domestic release in history. That's crazy. That is crazy. I would point out that it's not anywhere close to the worldwide gross, um, but obviously in the United States where you would expect Top Gun, a movie about American nationalism and patriotism (laughs) and hoorah-rah would um, hit so well here for American audiences. Point taken. Just to start out, what did we think of the movie? Ryan, you can go first. I know that you really loved it. So what did you love about it? So I I think the first thing, the important thing to start with is just the context of my relationship with the Top Gun franchise, which is I don't really have a whole lot of a relationship. Um, You know, I was culturally aware of the movies growing up. My dad was in the Air Force, and so he would be playing the Top Gun soundtrack, and it was kind of just around (laughs) me when I was a kid. But I ended up rewatching, or I guess maybe even watching for the first time. I don't remember having actually watched it as a kid, but I was somehow aware of so many of the moments. So maybe it was a rewatch, maybe it was a first time, I'm not sure. But when I went through, I was actually kind of a little disappointed because it just had become so culturally huge. 
and I kind of thought the movie wasn't very good. And so that made me not excited for Top Gun Maverick. And so I didn't go see it right when it released. I waited a couple of weeks. And when I went, I was just completely blown away. It was like, wow, these are real movie movies. Like movies are back. It made me so excited. It was just like one of those magical experiences where you had to go see it in the movie theater. And I feel bad for anybody who didn't go see this movie in the theater. Um, If you're hearing this now, I would still go find a screening. It's still showing. Go out and see that in the theaters because to just hear the sound designed in the movie and see how they shot all of these gorgeous sequences and, and actually hearing all the background from um, the director on how they made this movie was, was really incredible. And so it was definitely a, a wonderful experience for me. That's great. I was hoping this was going to be an IMAX release. I was like ready for a big screen experience that increased sound like we talked about with Nope. I don't think I've seen all of Top Gun, which was a shock to my friend who I went with. And he was like, oh, I need to tell you the ending. And I was like, if they don't recap the ending or like make it apparent of how this story continues, this movie is doing a bad job. So I was like, don't tell me. And then like in the first three minutes, you kind of understand what's happening. Well, the first three minutes of the movie is literally just the first three minutes of Top Gun, um, <laughs> yeah. which is really like quite a move, right? For this director just to be like, yeah, we're just going to reshoot the original Top Gun for like the first five minutes. Um, and I, that could have gone really badly, but it ended up working really well for me. And throughout the movie, really, they do a lot of callbacks and nods to the original, where if I hadn't just watched it, it would have gone completely over my head. Mm-hmm. But having seen it, it's like, oh, like they're referencing this part of the original or, oh, they're referencing that part of the original. Like even at the end, when Maverick buzzes the tower, that's like the ongoing joke within the original Top Gun. And so when he buzzes the tower at the end, you're like, yeah, Maverick. Mm-hmm. We love references. With this, I will say I loved the flying sequences. I almost expected them to be bigger, but that thrill that you feel, there was some great editing in there of watching Maverick do this and teach his students how to do this the right way was what movie making is all about. The rest of it, the story, a bit cheesy. Only like the last part of the movie, I would say. And it was a cheese that I enjoyed. I agree with that. We saw different movies then, but some of the like love story that could have been fully cut out. Nobody needed that. Jennifer Connelly looked gorgeous and she was great as the bartender. They needed that for the vibe. Plus, how is the U.S. Air Force supposed to recruit people if they can't also sell sex? The piano part was cute. Another callback. But yeah, a lot of the dialogue was just laughable. I think that's a little harsh. Well, I, you know, I just wonder the kind of expectations Nick went into this movie with. I was just going in for a good time. I wasn't expecting, you know, a Oscar-winning best script out of this movie. This was, this was a movie about being visually dazzled and having a lot of fun and learning to love America again. <laughs> well, I mean, by the time I saw this movie, it was later in its release. And at that point, so many people had predicted this for best picture, even though I didn't believe it it still makes you think about it in some way. And that wasn't an expectation. No, I did not expect anything from this movie apart from having a good time. And I did at least partially have a good time. I think you're allowed to just enjoy yourself in a movie, but also not expect the worst and hope it's better than that. And this wasn't the worst, believe me. We can talk about some bad movies in a minute, but I think if I do go see it again, 
I know to like shut my brain off completely and just have fun. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a thinker. That's for sure. And neither is the first one. The first one, Ryan, I totally agree with you. I do not like it was always in the culture. Right. And I, I had known it and absorbed it like growing up, but I hadn't given it my full attention until very recently. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, my God, look, this is so cheesy. It feels like an inspiration for a lot of, like, 80s porn, honestly. Like, that's the vibe of the movie. But Top Gun Maverick, I was just excited for because I had no idea what it was going to be. And Tom Cruise movies are usually good. You know, when you wait that long from the 80s until now to make this legacy sequel, I was just curious what it was going to be like and what they were going to put into it. But I thought it was very successful at what it set out to do. I was incredibly emotionally invested in the story. I thought that the action sequences were really strong and you actually don't need to know that much about the original to enjoy it. I think they do a really good job of incorporating nods to the original. It still has that sort of very cheesy lack of self-awareness to it that the original Top Gun has, but I just enjoyed myself. I think that it improves everything from the original, namely direction. The direction in this movie, I think, is fantastic. The action sequences are incredibly clear. I am not an action movie person, and sometimes I'm very disoriented by elaborate action sequences, but here I was very invested in each one because I cared about the characters, and I cared about... Tom Cruise at the center of it and everything that he was doing. I really enjoyed it. And I think, too, if we're talking about this Jennifer Connelly character and the love story, sort of, between her and Maverick, I think what's funny about that is just, you guys know, I'm obsessed with celebrity and pop culture and learning all about that through history. And Tom Cruise, he really has established himself as this sort of charming, charismatic, vain character, both in the movie and in real life. So I thought it was hilarious that they put these scenes in there because it's just like, of course he's with Jennifer Connelly, this beautiful woman who sails and owns a bar and seems to have this amazing life that I really want. Yeah, the, the economics behind her <laughs> character's lifestyle, I don't know. She she probably had to have come from a lot of money because yeah. I can't imagine that that bar is bringing in uh, enough money to sustain that lifestyle. Well, if she makes one person pay for a round for the entire bar. I mean, I'm sure that's a good way to sustain business, bring a lot of people in for <laughs> free drinks. But yeah, and like seeing him, you know, I loved, of course, that shirtless, whatever version of football they were playing on. To the, the beach. One Republic song. Wild. Like it looked like a, an old Navy mm. commercial. <laughs> Completely gratuitous and, and absolutely there because they needed to copy the original again. Right. Which, again, shameless, but I just loved had no problem with. But I'm not going to complain about these like slow-mo shots of Glenn Powell or Miles Teller shirtless. But of course, then we see Tom Cruise shirtless. I was like, there it is. It was probably in the contract Mm -hmm. too. That's what's just funny about it and enjoyable. I heard they had to reshoot the scene two weeks later and like the whole cast was so ticked off because obviously they were starving themselves and getting ripped ahead of that scene. (laughs) And then they got called back to reshoot it. That's funny. So, Nick, you teased that people are starting to predict this and continuing to predict this for Best Picture. I want to know what you guys think. Like, Mm -hmm. is it possible? Is it going to happen? Should it happen? What do you think? Ryan's nodding. (laughs) 
It absolutely should happen. The Oscars are silly if they don't. They have plenty of slots. I'm not saying this thing deserves to win Best Picture, but it would just be so silly. I mean, this was just like the the pinnacle of just a box office blockbuster movie where crowds are just happy to go there and have a great time. And to nominate this, I think, you know, brings in a huge audience for the Oscars in general and gets people excited for the show and to see all of the actors, you know, getting to see Tom Cruise at the Oscars um, and just have fun with that. And I just think, you know, it would be silly not to nominate this movie. Ryan, I have a proposal for you. (laughs) I can't even say it. We will lobby to get Wakanda Forever nominated for Best Picture, but Top Gun Maverick cannot be. (laughs) Are you with me? I don't know. We'll see. We have to see Wakanda Forever. I can't judge a movie before I've seen it. I already know that that Top Gun Maverick is Best Picture nomination worthy. Ryan, you know what I'm going to say to you? I agree with you because I took the 10 Best Picture nominees last year and I said, okay, let's pretend there's an 11th and it's Top Gun Maverick. Where would I rank it? Guess where it is? Top five. Not kidding. On quality of movie alone, I would rank it in the top five of Best Picture nominees last year. This year, I don't know what else we still have coming. And if that will stand, like maybe there are 10 movies I like more than this this year um, in the second half of the year. But I agree with you. I think it would be fun and We've had some terrible movies get in, and I just sort of expect it. Not even get in, but win. Yeah. Whether I think it's going to happen is another thing. Nick, you always, I feel like, no. You have your pulse on it. Do you think this is happening at all? Or do you think people are just, like, bored already and just want something to happen that is fruitless? I think a lot of people just need something to talk about, and they're saying yes. Yes, I think... A lot of movies have been dropping out recently, which is kind of what we see around this time. Of course, like right after our predictions episode, it's like goodbye, Rustin, goodbye, maybe Scorsese, goodbye, so many of these movies that we were hoping for, for actor, for picture. And now I'm like, oh my God, what's left? Please, we have to make it stop. So we have 10 (laughs) movies. I'm going to say no, I don't want this. But do I actually think... I still think no. But again, we can see the next couple months, this is festival season starting. And once we get reviews from there, we can start to kind of actually form a top 10. Yeah. One thing that I do think is unique about Top Gun Maverick compared to some other blockbusters that come out, people are going back again and again to see this. And it still has appeal to people who haven't seen it. Like one of my friends who told me the other day that he had not been to a movie theater since 2018 went to see Top Gun Maverick with his girlfriend because he had heard so many good things about it and they loved it. If you keep hearing stories like that, they have to sort Mm -hmm. of mean something. Whether that means something for the Oscars is a different story, I guess. But that's something that I think is really important about the narrative around this movie that could catch on. I can personally attest to that. I went to see Top Gun Maverick with my brother and sister-in-law, and I don't know the last time they saw any movie in theaters. So, and they were the ones who asked me, hey, do you want to go with us? So people who don't normally go to see movies in theaters, especially post-pandemic, are going to see this movie. And I think that speaks to its potential in the ultimate best picture race. I think, too, like, it doesn't have the Marvel stain on it. I'm sorry, Ryan, but, like, when the Spider-Man No Way Home conversation was happening, 
And I thought Spider-Man No Way Home was better than some of the Best Picture nominees last year. It still was that thing of, why does a Marvel movie need to be here? That definitely factors into it. Black Panther was another thing altogether. But so far, I think this is genuinely the movie of the year. I'm just waiting to see, I think, how long that can last because it is early. It's early August. We still have to think, like, what, I guess, can outgross this monster before Oscar nomination voting starts. And for me, those two big question marks are Wakanda Forever and Avatar 2. I think Avatar is the biggest threat to it right now as far as just your standard blockbuster goes. And then in other below-the-line categories, hearing Lady Gaga's song after the movie helped me a little bit, but I still don't think it should get in. And while I did mention the editing before... There were some awful edits also, mostly like with the lovey-dovey stuff and (laughs) the inner cutting was just, it was messy. And then with sound, if the categories were still split, I feel like it could get in, maybe in mixing. How do you guys feel? Nick, I think this is the front runner to win sound at the moment. Yeah. I mean, that was honestly one of the aspects of the movie that just blew me away the most. I mean, literally, like, the sound is so incredible in the movie that, like, you feel like like you're physically getting blown away. When those planes are taking off, when they're flying, when they're in their aerial sequences, that is, like, partially the star of the movie outside of Tom Cruise. I must have watched this on, like, an iPhone in a movie theater because I, I mean, <laughs> did not feel the If you said you watched it on the train, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I promise for this, I did not. <laughs> The Lady Gaga song worked way better in the movie to me than individually, like as a track that I would listen to. I completely agree, Sophia. That was, I heard the song before the movie and I was kind of like, eh. And then I heard it in the movie and I was like, hell yeah. Yeah, it works in the movie. (laughs) Also, I want her nominated because this category is always thin and I just like, I I need some, some good people there with decent songs yeah she's another great fun person to just have at the oscars yeah i mean the last round at the oscars when she was there for a star is born i mean that was just so much fun the press cycles then i mean that brought so much attention to the telecast i mean it got people really excited it was a a huge culture point yeah so i think the strongest categories for it are sound editing and song i do think if sound is strong enough where we do see that it does become some sort of front runner in the category i think editing can definitely go along with it yeah i feel like those three categories right now if i had to guess those are the safest bets for oscar nominations i don't see cinematography picture i think is still a stretch i'm gonna wait for some more information before i jump on that but i wouldn't be mad about it Even if it's not nominated, it will still make its way to the ceremony. They'll find any opportunity to include it. Yeah, they will. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's get into some of these other movies now. We're going to fly through some of these, and that will just show maybe how we feel about them. I haven't seen Lightyear. We're going to start with Best Animated Feature. So I'm going to leave this to both of you, but I will say it's coming to Disney Plus on August 3rd. So... I will be watching it very soon. 
or at least have the potential to, <laughs> based on what you guys say. It, Lightyear is a perfectly serviceable movie. I don't think it has the heart of a lot of the Pixar greats do. I guess in the movie's defense, I personally have never been a huge Toy Story fan, um, which I know is probably like sinful to say, and a lot of people would be gasping at that. But for me, I don't love those movies. And so it doesn't have the benefit of that attachment for me. But overall, even I think some of the things it does to pull at your heartstrings that they do in other Pixar movies just didn't didn't do a lot for me in this movie. I will say my husband did love this movie. He's super into sci-fi and it worked really well for him. But for me, Pixar's kind of been on this downtrend since uh, their original movies like Inside Out in 2015 and Coco in 2017. There hasn't been a whole lot for me since that I've truly, really loved from them and, and thought was kind of up to the their highest standards. Yeah, Nick, you mentioning that it's coming to Disney Plus very soon really has me wondering how this will do on Disney Plus because one of the interesting things to me about this movie that is that it's sort of a flop. Right now it's made $219 million on a $200 million budget, which is not good. I'm curious as to why that happened, but I do think part of it is that audiences lately expect these movies to be on Disney Plus. So even if a poster or a trailer says only in theaters, families are so used to these movies being on Disney Plus lately, almost exclusively, like Turning Red or Luca or Soul. They're very used to them being there and to having that catalog really easily accessible that I think they'll think, oh, it's coming to Disney Plus soon anyway. Why do we need to go to the theater to see it? I'm curious what the numbers will look like. Not that we'll know, but they'll probably share something about how it does on Disney Plus. But I agree with you, Ryan. I think this movie itself is fine. It's very straightforward compared to other Pixar movies. It doesn't have that philosophical, emotional arc that's there. It wasn't there for me, at least. I'm glad Neil enjoyed it. But there's great voice work in the movie, particularly from Kiki Palmer and Uzo Aduba. So if that entices you, Nick, I feel like I wanted to mention them because maybe it would draw you in. I had no idea, yeah. And Buzz is a cat dad. He has a cat named Socks, and Socks is an amazing character. Yeah, he's the highlight of the movie, for sure. Yeah, I totally would have had a Socks stuffed animal if I was a kid when this came out. So that's what I would recommend it for, but I wouldn't go in with your high expectations. Like, this is not a Wally if we're thinking of Pixar sci-fi. It's not a Ratatouille or an Inside Out, one that really, like, pulls at your heartstrings with its original storytelling and emotions. But I do think it'll get into the animated feature race. I mean, that kind of gives me hope for other companies. I know for sure there's a Cartoon Saloon feature that Tom Moore is producing, so I'm excited about that. We also have Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio on Netflix. We finally got a full trailer for that. Again, love some stop motion, so maybe we can like actually have a race for some of these other movies, other companies, to really get in here. If you guys are saying Lightyear is a flop, that's not usually what we say about Pixar's top film. Maybe this is finally the year. Maybe. Is Turning Red in contention? I can't remember if that was released in uh, 2022 or 2021, but that would also be a Pixar possibility and I would personally Mm -hmm. put turning right above Lightyear. I completely agree with you Ryan. For me Nick you mentioning Pinocchio I loved this trailer and I was surprised that I loved this trailer but also if a stop motion feature is in the animated feature race I am all in on that movie usually. Mm -hmm. Speaking of stop motion 
Marcel the Shell with Shoes On is eligible Ugh. for animated feature, which is so exciting. I wow. loved this movie. I thought it was so cute. Yeah, this this one was so heartwarming. Um, I will say for parents out there, just beware of taking young children to this movie. Uh, you know, you might have a, a sobbing child on your hands, or if you were in my theater, quite a few <laughs> sobbing children, but just completely touching and heartwarming. And just who would have thought that a decade-old meme video could turn into a movie that was so special? Children, adults too. I was sobbing. Yeah. It, yeah. This isn't just for children. No, there were there were there were definitely tears for me as well. I was looking over there. I turned to my husband and I said, "If they if they do what I think they're gonna do, I'm gonna be ticked. I'm walking out." I didn't end up walking out, but I was mad. <laughs> I just yeah. I feel like this movie could work for kids for sure. Like it is very cute. It has this central theme of connection that anyone can enjoy, but there also there's great humor in it that works really well for adults. And I loved that. And I loved like Leslie Stahl being in it, that whole thing. That was great. There were just multiple laugh out loud moments where I was just cracking up. Just so funny. I really liked this movie too, because when it started, I was so worried. I thought, oh my God, am I going to be here for over an hour and a half listening to like an extended version of the Marcel the Shell YouTube video? Like, is that what this is going to be? But then it quickly pivots into what's a very simple universal story with great humor built into it. And I just loved it. I also thought the voice work from Jenny Slate and the Isabella Rossellini, I want her to be my grandmother. This was such a wholesome movie. I recommend it for everybody. The voice work was great. I think how they adapted the videos into creating this bigger story. They kind of used the pandemic and Marcel's exponential rise to fame as a part of that and included that in the story. So I thought that was cute. I loved it. Yeah, and the themes anybody can relate to. It's about family and finding yourself and going for your dreams. And I loved... Marcel's energy Mm -hmm. there was no negativity I was also worried about going in and being like what kind of a movie is this going to be but it was short it was to the point it was exciting and fun to be a part of and it was the perfect length I say I echo that just as as someone who is very opposed to runtimes over two hours this runtime was at hour 30 just completely perfect especially for the story it was telling I'll agree with you on this, this one time. Sometimes I am a fan of the three-hour epic, but Marcel the Shell with Shoes On is not a three-hour epic, and it shouldn't be, and the creators know that. It's good because people like, for instance, the guy who made the Batman maybe didn't understand that about his movie. (laughs) That is a good point. So our other films in this category that came out this summer, we have Minions, The Rise of Gru, and the Bob's Burgers movie. Bob's Burgers, I know, was delayed from last year so i was really excited for this both of these movies are fine and that is all i have to say about them you can watch the bob's burgers movie on hbo max and hulu can you watch it if you've never seen a single bob's burgers thing yeah you can but i think it loses some of its tv charm in the movie like it's trying to be this bigger thing and maybe it does work better as a 20 minute comedy on tv that you watch weekly or you can binge but something about the movie just felt different and i it utilized different types of animation that the show doesn't and the characters are there i loved their arcs it sort of expects you to know who they are 
but like the big story of the movie is not only of this family coming together, but you learn about Luis and why she wears those pink ears. And that was kind of a cool way for this movie to culminate with that storyline because they play at it in the show, but not to the extent that they do here. And it is this adventure that brings them all together. But I was also very happy just having it on in the background and like kind of (laughs) sinking into my couch, not needing to pay attention fully. (laughs) And with Minions, this was one of the worst theatrical experiences I've ever had. Not because of the movie. Was it worse than the guy when we saw Reds? Ten times worse. Oh, no. Okay. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) I booked my ticket. There were two tickets taken in the very back row. I'm like, great, fine, whatever. And I'm like dead center. And I go in and this was right after Elvis, which we'll get to. But I go in during the trailers. I sit in my seat. These kids are talking. They're like teenagers. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. The movie starts. They're still like screaming at each other. I think you're alienating your teenage audience right now. Nick. That's totally fine. Hi, hi, all of you. <laughs> Please don't be rude in a movie theater <laughs> to other people. They finally like quiet down a little bit. At this point, I'm like, if I say something, it's not going to matter one bit. So I'm just like, do I leave? I almost left. I was like, I can just get a refund, whatever. They end up running up and down the stairs, like playing hide and seek the entire movie. (laughs) What? (laughs) And one of them has a scooter and they're like literally carrying the scooter above their heads, (laughs) running in and around in front, outside and coming back in. I'm like, what's the point? You guys are off of school. And you're going to come and do this in a movie theater? Like, go home, go outside. Yes, it's hot, but this is the last place that I would be if I was in a movie that I wasn't paying attention to. And not that I was particularly with all this happening anyway. But that was just, like, over the top. I highly recommend Alamo. Because <laughs> that also can pay for itself. And the crowd is better. <laughs> yeah. I might have to switch. The biggest benefit of AMC is not their person-free ticketing, because when we went to see Marcel Deschal, there were eight kiosks, and only one was working, and there were only a few people in front of us, and they kept trying to change their Thor showing, because they couldn't figure out which Thor movie they wanted to see that had the right seats. They shouldn't have gone to any of the Thor showings. We almost missed the start of Marcel the Shell, but bless, we walked in right as Nicole Kidman was finishing up her speech, so I still got my time with Nicole, so I was still happy. That's the real benefit of the AMC experience, seeing Nicole. With Minions, the thing that I'll note is that this is the first animated movie to cross $300 million domestically in the COVID era. It's been doing really well, and speaking of Oscar potential, the soundtrack to this movie has so many interesting collaborators on it, people that I really like outside of the Minion soundtrack, like Phoebe Bridgers, Tame Impala, St. Vincent. And I will be using this platform as a four-year consideration for Diana Ross and Tame Impala for Turn Up the Sunshine, just because Diana Ross should get an Oscar before some of the other contenders in original song this year. The one good thing about this movie, I will say, it plays at all of the movies that came before really well there are so many nods to the super villains that grew has to face and like despicable me and despicable me too so it is fun and the minions have so much screen time you start to kind of feel for them like 
besides Kevin, there are just multiple minions with names. So it's fun. It's definitely for children and families. But I enjoyed Despicable Me way, way more. I think that has a lot more heart to it than the Minions sequel did. I don't even know if I saw the original Minions a few years ago. I've never seen a movie with a minion in it. You know, I think the original Despicable Me is like genuinely <laughs> regarded as a, a very good animated movie, but uh, you know, the follow-up was whatever to me, and I, I have not stayed current with the, the Minions franchise. Okay, is it time for MCU talk? Can we cue the music? No, not that long intro. But you are up, Ryan. Please tell us about these lovely two movies that I haven't seen. There's a lot to tackle here between the, <laughs> the couple of original movies that came out this year and then talking about you know Marvel holistically and where they're at. I'll start big and just say, you know, I think there's a lot of hem-hawing that I hear from people who are paid to talk about movies that are just really concerned that the MCU is just not going anywhere and that people are losing interest. And and to that, I I just think that they've got to talk about something. Everyone who I know who are MCU fans are still having a blast at these movies. Um, When you look at Doctor Strange, the first Doctor Strange movie came out in 2016 and made $678 million, whereas this new Doctor Strange movie is um, almost at a billion dollars. So I think right there just shows that there continues to be growth um, and that people are really excited about these characters and are coming out for these movies. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily compare to the end of Phase 3 with all of the uh, Infinity Saga movies, but you really can't compare to that. And then when you look at Thor Love and Thunder, that is down compared to Ragnarok, but it's only been out for a month. Um, So it does have some time to continue to grow at the box office. But I think there is um, maybe um, a little bit less um, excitement there specifically around Thor. When you look at, you know, Rotten Tomatoes, it's it's not a um, favorite of this podcast. Mm -hmm. But when I look at the audience scores, you know, Doctor Strange, the score for audiences is virtually the same between the first one and the second one. So it seems like audiences are still having a blast with that. Love and Thunder is a little bit down on Rotten Tomatoes audience score, but but still good. Like I said, Rotten Tomatoes, your mileage may vary. I mean, Rise of Skywalker is at 86% audience score there, and we all know that movie's trash. (laughs) So, you know, for me with Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange was really exciting because it was, um, you know, the kind of the second of the new MC movies that's really breaking into the kind of the idea of the multiverse. And I thought that there was a lot of potential for it to be really convoluted and hard to understand, but I think they actually did a good job of creating a fairly logical and understandable plot um, for audiences where you weren't super confused in what's going on here. At least that was my experience. And I think they did a similar thing with Spider-Man as well, which also is the other movie dealing with multiverses. From like the behind-the-scenes perspective, Sam Raimi directed this movie. Uh, he wasn't the original director, so this movie was kind of split between two directors. Um, which is a, a Disney problem in recent years where they, they fire their original directors and bring on somebody else. And obviously Sam Raimi has a very distinct voice and you see that in a lot of the movie, but it does kind of feel like you are watching two different movies at times. You kind of get more of that standard MCU fare 
for part of the movie. And then part of the movie does really embrace the camp. And that was the part that I personally enjoyed the most, you know, when I think about like the Elizabeth Olsen chase scene um, in the later half of the movie, and she's just killing it, just totally freaking me out. It's so scary. So reminiscent of a lot of these old horror movies. And then when he gets even cra- super crazy and does zombie strange, um, I just was cracking up laughing. You know, I don't know if everyone always necessarily realizes that like these movies are, are a little campy and supposed to be funny in terms of Sam Raimi but for me I I had a blast with that I think with Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness the fact that Sam Raimi was attached to it was what intrigued me and why I saw this movie actually uh, because I'm a big fan of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies I loved them I grew up with them and I think what I liked about Doctor Strange is that it was pretty gruesome at times. It did have that Sam Raimi stamp on it. It was shocking that they did things as gruesome as they did in a Marvel Disney movie. Right. Like I was like, yes, like more of this, more decapitations. Like <laughs> Sophia I has bloodlust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I loved all of the um, witchy aesthetics associated with Elizabeth Olsen and the Scarlet Witch, of course, when she's like levitating over the pentagram. They loved nailed that. that aesthetic. And then, I mean, visually too, if you talk about there's a, a fight scene where Dr. Strange has like a, a fight with his alter ego and they fight using musical notes and it's just like visually stunning and just like sound design wise is really cool to watch as well just i mean completely unique and not something you would ever expect to see in kind of a vanilla marvel movie you said it not me um i did kind of hate the music note fight though. oh um, no another story. it was a blast <laughs> Nick, you would hate it. But I will say, like, it still wasn't enough for me to not feel like we had to put this Marvel fan service in. There was a moment where I was like, okay, I'm kind of enjoying this movie. Like, this isn't bad. I'm fine. I understand what's going on. And I'm not going to spoil it for listeners who still haven't seen it yet. But there's a moment when all these cameos take place. And my audience, people started standing up and cheering and clapping and high-fiving each other. And my sister and I just sat there in silence and we were like, are we supposed to know what's going on? Is this important? I guess it is. And I was like, I want to walk out. Like, this is so weird. I I don't know what's going on here. And I should know what's going on here because this is a movie. Like, I should be able to pick up on what's going on based on everything that's happened so far in the story. But of course, no, it's not self-contained. I have to have watched every single Disney Plus show and have read the trades. That's not to know true. What's That's not true. Yeah, it is. I didn't know what was going on. I had to text you and Neil afterwards because I was like, are these characters, is this even an MCU property? What is happening? So I think a trademark of these MCU movies is the cameo, right? And generally they're embedded into the end of these movies as kind of like the, the mid cut scene or the post credit cut scene. And this is, I think, one of the first times where they really kind of embraced this cameo idea and really baked it in the plot itself. But it kind of occurs in like a, a different dimension. And so it allows them to do a lot of really weird, fun things that they can tie back to other Marvel movies. And I can see for someone who's not, you know, super into these MCU movies, kind of being turned off by that, you know, where in other MCU movies, you can kind of ignore the cameo because it's not an integral part of the plot. Whereas here, this, you know, did become a significant plot point in the movie, but was, you know, obviously huge fan service. You know, I don't think there was any standing and high-fiving in my theater, but uh, everyone was pretty excited as well. The problem with going on the Friday night, I Nick, you know, there are times in my life where I can say, like, I should have listened to you. I should have trusted your judgment, and I chose otherwise, and it was a bad decision. You listened to me, Sophia. 
Yeah, I listened to you and I shouldn't have. But Ryan, you can lead the way with Thor Love and Thunder. So the Thor franchise kind of went through a reinvention. Kenneth Branagh was the original director for the first movie. And they kind of make these really kind of rigid movies. And they're they're not favorites for a lot of MCU fans, um, especially the second one. I think the second one's like widely regarded as like the, the worst MCU movie. But th- this is the kind of second of the Taika Waititi movies. He came in and made Thor Ragnarok and kind of reinvented invented the Thor character and kind of set a tone that the franchise really um, picked up on and utilized heavily in the movies after Thor Ragnarok. This movie just takes that Taika Waititi factor and just like turns it up to 11. It's just nonstop jokes and gags um, that push you through the entire movie. And so when you're throwing up that many jokes, um, obviously there's a lot more potential for those to miss. And there are definitely misses, but there's some huge hits as well, at least for me. Even to the point where, like, my girl Taylor Swift even got a nod in this movie where they um, have goats in the movie. And there's a frequent um, reference to the goat screaming, which is an old Taylor Swift meme um, back from her Red album. I had a lot of fun with it, but it is uh, not a super coherent movie. It's it's pretty messy. It doesn't necessarily push the MCU forward um, from a plot perspective. It's kind of just a side story. I would say for me, one of the biggest misses in the movie is actually Natalie Portman's performance. Um, She felt super wooden to me. And I just was asking myself, is is Natalie Portman actually a good actress? I know she has one (laughs) best actress for Black Swan, I believe. Mm -hmm. And so I know that she's definitely turned in some awesome performances in the past, but she's also got some pretty rough performance as well. I'm not sure if that was more on the script than her or on, on just the directing, but she definitely did not mix in this movie very well. And she was a downside from the plus side i think the creative peak of the movie is there's this really gorgeous black and white sequence um that occurs midway through the movie where they just do some things visually that marvel's not done before so on the natalie portman thing first i think it's a major problem with the script and with the direction if you told me that taika waititi never visited this set once i would believe you because this movie doesn't feel like a movie. It feels like an extended joke created by a freshman student in his dorm room. I have nothing positive to say about this script. I think if you try to make your whole movie into a joke, why am I supposed to care for the second part of the movie where we're supposed to have some sort of emotional connection to the story? And when the entire movie is a joke, how is any of it funny? I feel like the attempts at humor were so shallow and just like stupid. I just, I didn't laugh at all in this. And I just was like, ugh, I was so turned off. That sounds like my experience watching The Lost City, where I did not laugh once, even though I love Sandra Bullock. (laughs) It's really disappointing to see interviews and to hear Taika Waititi speak about this movie, because it's so obvious that he doesn't care, or he wants to put up a front that he doesn't care And it's very much like a part of his personal brand. And you don't have to be like a Steven Spielberg to speak about movies in a way that's like cinema is going to save the world. You can be Joseph Kaczynski for Top Gun Maverick. Like think of the way that he spoke about that movie. And that's a major blockbuster franchise film. But the way that Taika Waititi speaks about this, like he doesn't know what's going on, that he wasn't present on the shoot and that it's funny somehow. Like, give me a break. I I can't do it. I'm sorry. I can end my rant Have now. you ever been a Taika fan? I mean, were there things that you have enjoyed from him in the past? Or has he just kind of always been on your nerves and he just gets increasingly more? Yeah, I think he just gets increasingly more grating. And he, he can't really commit to anything serious, which is something that I don't really enjoy. Like, even in Jojo Rabbit, 
he couldn't take it there. He would get close, but the satire just wasn't sharp or smart enough for me to be there like I am with The Great Dictator, for instance. But yeah, my mileage on Taika is very limited. My mileage on Kenneth Branagh is also very limited. So maybe Thor is just not... Not a franchise for you. What about your mileage on Chris Hemsworth? Oh, very high. Very high. That was great. Brought to you by how many steroids? (laughs) Don't care. It worked for me. (laughs) Taika has so many properties coming too. Oh, no. His film Next Goal Wins which was delayed from last year, is now delayed until next year. So this was the Army Hammer reshot film about the soccer team. And then he has another Star Wars film coming, also in production. Did you see that he asked Natalie Portman if she wanted to star in his Star Wars movie? And she goes, uh, I think that might be a problem. That's what I'm talking about. Is like, is this his bad sense of humor? Or is this him literally not knowing what's going on? I have so many questions. But Ryan, I'll say, like, again, I don't want the Natalie Portman is a bad actress thing happening because she's not a bad actress. This was a terrible script. and It was a disservice to her. And it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> we can move on. Well, I feel like we're ending the MCU on such a down note. And I will just say that at least the people I talk to, everyone's still pretty excited about these movies. They just announced the huge slate that's coming up here with their next uh, two phases that's going to culminate with all this multiverse stuff that they're doing. And I, for one, am still really excited and and having a lot of fun, at least with the movies. The TV is another story, but this is a movie podcast, so we can leave it there. Good. And everyone go watch the Black Panther Wakanda Forever trailer. Oh, Oh my gosh, chills. I was so excited. So let's talk about some theatrical releases that we've had that have had some good box office numbers. We'll recently just plug our Nope episode, which we did last week. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely go and listen to that and go see the movie. Let's start with The Black Phone, which was made on an $18 million budget, but horror usually does pretty well. And this crossed the $100 million mark. So it has turned over a pretty good profit. Um, horror usually does, and it's really cheap to make, but this is a good number for it. This was one of the scariest trailers I had seen in a really long time, so my hopes were really high, and it was a bit of a disappointment. I hadn't read the short story, but my friend had and kind of told me afterwards the differences between them, and I think what the movie did in adding things or changing different components was fine. Like, I think it did a good job in adapting, but it felt pretty thin and it wasn't as scary as I was hoping it would be. I think Ethan Hawke always being in a different mask or different parts of his face veiled was creepy as hell. And I loved that. But I think in how the movie evolved and how you're supposed to try to help this kid get out of the basement, some of the things were too easy to piece together. And... With the sister having these visions and it was too like on the nose of like adults are bad, kids are good, like listen to kids, which are the morals of a lot of these types of stories. So I think it was just less than what I was expecting. Do I have high hopes and expectations for horror? I do. And maybe that's where I was faulting myself. But you did like Halloween Kills. (laughs) So. In a totally different way. Like this was maybe trying to be campy that was just way over the top and this was still trying to be mostly horror and terrifying and it wasn't as much as i wanted it to be 
I'll say I have a relatively low bar for horror movies, but I do want to be scared. And I agree with you. Like, this isn't like one where you're up all night scared of it. It's very easy and could have been a lot scarier, I think, especially based on the trailer. I definitely agree with you on that. But I really enjoyed that we didn't have any kind of backstory for this character, the Grabber. I feel like I'm so used to movies now having to have a backstory for every single character and I just don't need that. I think it's fine that a character is just scary and that's it. Um, especially in a horror movie, especially in something that is low budget. So I did like enjoy it relatively for what it was, but is it like hereditary? No, but I also don't think it needs to be. Next up, we're moving up in our box office rankings at 13. We have Elvis huge blockbuster. We have another showy, biopic given to us by Baz Luhrmann. Choices were made for Austin Butler to shine. And Tom Hanks, how do we feel? Ryan, first, do you want to see this movie? Is this something that's like on your list of things that you are eager to see or care to see? Or is this like a, I'm waiting till this hits streaming? I think the only reason I will see this movie is just to spend a few hours with Austin Butler. And that's about it. And that's fair. I mean, you do get to spend a lot of time with him. He looks beautiful in a lot of this movie and I think he gives an amazing performance for someone who hasn't had a big star vehicle yet I feel like he really embodies Elvis and I am all for the press tour associated with this movie for Austin Butler I feel like how much you like this movie really will depend on your mileage for Baz Luhrmann his movies do make me dizzy I (laughs) just feel like very overwhelmed and overstimulated during his movies and some work better for me than others strictly ballroom works really well for me because that's not in this maximalist style necessarily moulin rouge of course romeo and juliet i really like so i do like quite a few but this one i don't think that using this tom hanks performance as the main device to frame elvis was a smart choice because this performance is very polarizing and for me took me out of the movie. I'm all for actors having fun, but this was just, he was incredibly miscast here because with every role Tom Hanks takes, he brings Tom Hanks to it. So why not put someone else in this part where you don't see that person's persona, but you instead get to know this new character, Tom Parker. And I do think the movie was a little bit confused because of how many attempts that it made to frame Elvis in different ways. It was just too much. I mean, this movie could be called The Colonel instead of Elvis. That's how much Tom Hanks' story they're trying to show here throughout. And I just feel like that was a little lost on me. I think for older audiences who lived through Elvis and with Elvis listening to him, like my mom loved this movie And I know others have too. Mm -hmm. And they all say that Austin got Elvis so right. And for me, I'm like, okay, I just have to accept that and try to frame the movie a different way. Because going in, yeah, the Lerman of it all really threw me and took me out like immediately. We have these like wacky camera angles and movements and these special effects going on with the international marquee. That I was like, hold up, I need to take an Advil because this is about Mm -hmm. to be a bumpy ride and not a good one. 
like you're saying, Sophia, I was like, of course, we're going to make a movie about Elvis about somebody else. And I didn't love how much Hanks was in there because it really was like the villain story behind Elvis. And I get that in that way, we're trying to humanize Elvis for like somebody else causing all of his problems and his demise. But I don't know, just put a bad taste in my mouth. And for how much Tom Hanks was doing, for how bad that prosthetic suit was, also with Elvis's horrible prosthetics in the very, very end, which did not match the actual video. One part that I did like of kind of juxtaposing real Elvis with Austin Elvis and in trying to like recreate how TV footage looked back then. And in some of the shots throughout, they showed like Bobby Kennedy or like the old Elvis where they couldn't do that. And I thought that was fine. And then also with how Austin moved, I think it was great. You know, he really did embody Elvis. I felt like the voice was close enough for a character that I don't know versus the Marilyn trailer, which we're not really going to talk about today, but we will soon. I felt like Austin did an amazing job. But we can also talk about if we think Austin will get in. And I think it's too early to say yes, for sure. I think he deserves at this point in the conversation to be nominated for this movie for Best Actor. He really does save the movie for me and he fully embodies Elvis and everyone's talking about that. Like the people who see this movie, like you mentioned, your mom, people who lived in the time when Elvis was alive, like love this movie and love this performance. And I've talked to a lot of people who who really connect to it and who feel really moved by it. And I do think that Baz Luhrmann is sort of the perfect director to tell Elvis's story because it is so over the top. It is so glittery and just bizarre. And I think you need a director like that to do it. I just wish there was a little bit more focus on Butler and his performance and not on Tom Hanks. I do think, though, it's it's possible that he can get in, especially because... A lot of actors right now are raving about him. Gary Oldman, Brad Pitt, they all have really positive things to say about Butler's performance. And we do have a transformation in a musical biopic, and that can benefit him. We did have one listener question. If we didn't give Baz Luhrmann an Oscar for Moulin Rouge, does he really need one for anything else? (laughs) Um. <laughs> and I promise I didn't write this in, but I absolutely agree with this. Question. Yeah, I, I was going to say, who is this mystery listener? <laughs> is this you? <laughs> I agree. He hasn't made, for me, anything after Moulin Rouge that deserves an Oscar, at least for himself. I think with Oscars for this movie, we do also just briefly, in addition to Butler, we should touch on Catherine Martin being the production designer and the costume designer for this movie. I think... She definitely can get in and probably will get in, um, at least for one. I would say production design and costume design. She mm-hmm. just, it feels really sure to me, even more so than Top Gun's nominations. I did love the costumes. And it's interesting because when she was doubly nominated before for set or production design and costume design, she won for both of them in both of those movies and that was Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby so if we see another double nomination can she do it a third time okay I saw Where the Crawdads Sing which is of course based on the worldwide best-selling book by Delia Owens the same name 
It's a Reese Witherspoon project. It was part of her book club, which I think is part of the reason why it gained so much popularity. 34% critic score, 96% audience scores. That is one of the greatest disparities I think we have (laughs) maybe ever on the site, but definitely this year. Is it a pretty faithful adaptation, Sophia? It's pretty faithful. I I think audiences, when it comes to like book adaptations, if it is a really Mm -hmm. faithful adaptation, I think audiences, if they love the book, they tend to eat up the movie as well. Yeah, it's very faithful. And Daisy Edgar Jones, she's in the center part. She plays Kaya Clark. She's also known as the Marsh Girl. I will say, though, like looking at the scores, I didn't hate this movie at all. Like at all. I think people are being a little dramatic about it. It's fine. And you got a new Taylor Swift song out of it. So, I mean, that's always a plus. Yeah, we can get to that. But I think with this movie, it reminded me a lot of those like early 2000s movies my friends and I would watch at sleepovers in middle school. It's not as good as The Notebook, but like a movie like that, Sweet Home Alabama, like all of those rom-coms or romantic dramas of that time, this feels very similar to those. And there was a part of me that just had a little bit of nostalgia for that, which is why this movie to me was just perfectly watchable. You just have to go into it and just sort of suspend your disbelief because like this girl, she's grown up in the Carolina marshes her whole life alone, yet her shack of a house looks like an anthropology. It looks like one of my favorite stores that I go to in Greenpoint to buy plants. Like it just, it's not believable in that way. It's, she of course wears Madewell and free people and she has like perfect hair and somehow perfect makeup even though she's living through this humidity and it's also supposed to be a period film but it looks contemporary to me so that's another issue but again like if you're fine with all of those things if you just want like an easy summer movie it's perfectly fine in that way and the taylor swift song i think she will get nominated for a golden globe for it if the golden globes happen because they love her but this song to me sounds sort of like a folklore reject and The Academy doesn't really like her. I don't want to tempt fate here, but she has never been shortlisted for a song. I think this year the category is going to be a little bit thinner, so I can see that, but the song is nothing special. But you don't have to be a special song to win here, as we know. Is it? Okay, so like power rankings here for potential uh, Taylor Swift Oscar-nominated songs. This or Only the Young? Only the Young. Really? Okay. Yeah, but this is better than Beautiful Ghosts. Not as good as Safe and Sound. Yes, that's, I would say, for me, tops. <laughs> yeah, that's the best one. Okay, we're getting into our next category. What is a Netflix movie? <laughs> Bad? We have some interesting additions here. Most of these are really new. So we got The Gray Man most recently. Also Spiderhead, Persuasion, and RRR. I mean, RRR, I don't even know if it's fair to say it's a Netflix movie. I mean, it's obviously distributed here by Netflix, but is an Indian film. So I feel like the other three are probably have more in common with each other. I think so, especially based on reviews and based on just what I've been hearing. RRR is the outlier of the group for sure. It's just that's where most American audiences are watching it. In regard to this group, I mean, I have only seen Spiderhead, but I will tell you that this year there was a, a much better movie for the director, Joseph Kaczynski. Miles Teller had a better movie and Chris Hemsworth had a better movie. <laughs> it, it was essentially a boring Black Mirror episode with an A-list gas. I have seen Persuasion. As a lover of period dramas and Jane Austen, I was excited for this in a way because 
it's an adaptation of an Austin novel and one that we don't see very often. It's not like a Pride and Prejudice or even a Sense and Sensibility or Emma. Even though Dakota Johnson looks beautiful in it, even though Henry Golding looks beautiful in it, this movie completely misses the point of the text. And its choices to modernize the text, they sort of miss the point of the tone. So I was not a fan of this one. I think that there are much better adaptation, Austin adaptations to choose from, even this summer. Definitely. I would recommend Fire Island wholeheartedly before I recommend Persuasion. Did you guys watch The Gray Man? I thought about it, but haven't gotten to it. You know, the pedigree here probably lines right up with something I might like with the Russo brothers directing and then having Ryan Gosling and uh, Chris Evans uh, as the stars. So it's something I'll probably get to, but I just I haven't yet. But also I've I've heard at least from you guys or at least from Sophia, not a fan after a short sampling. I wanted to see Ryan Gosling's return. It was way too much. It's like the cheapest looking expensive movie ever made and you know the russo brothers after cherry i should have just thrown in the towel completely with them but i decided to try this one out and it just might i just don't think it's for me i also started it and passed out don't really care to revisit like what wants to be a born movie but is quite inferior and i kind of felt similarly about spiderhead where yes now that you say black mirror ryan it's very much giving that vibe it is an interesting concept and apart from journey smollett i kind of just like disengaged from it i was hoping for this big moment to happen i mean it's this group of people but they're testing drugs on them and their effects so like can you make someone fall in love with a drug or make them listen to your every command but along with that goes with you know putting this in bad hands and it's kind of simple It's super elementary. Like, I feel like we've gotten that before in different ways. And the ending was just like, okay. It could be so much smarter. I mean, to me, like, it's a movie about ethical dilemmas. But I think Severance, which a TV show that was on Apple TV this year, was a show about ethical dilemmas that kind of took this concept of exploring an ethical dilemma and just did it a million times better. Oh, I love Severance. And I think there's a mystery there. And the mystery here was revealed pretty quickly. But they didn't do anything with it. The mystery itself wasn't like extraordinarily compelling above and beyond what we already were witnessing happening. Like, I feel like them doing these trials on these inmates, these prisoners could have had like such a deeper meaning to this. And but it just didn't happen. Well, I have, I think, the most important question about this movie, which is uh, Chris Hemsworth. Would we rather smash him here in Spiderhead or in Thor? Oh, um. Well, character-wise, it has to be Thor, even though I haven't seen any of those movies. He's awful here. (laughs) I mean, he's hot with glasses, but... He looks really good in Spider-Head. His character's obviously creep, but he looks like a a human, like an actual real human in Mm Spider-Head. Oh, he's so hot. Looks alone, I have to go with Spider-Head. But there's something compelling about Thor, I have to say. Just not the humor. (laughs) Not the humor. (laughs) But like him in the hoodie, I was... I was into. Like, he actually felt more like in a... You know, I could actually be with Chris Hemsworth in Spiderhead, you know? See, I feel more like I could be with him in Thor, because he just, like, is kind of lonely and sad. This is looks entirely. This is not personality. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess our last movie, RRR. This was wild. And 
the box office for this movie, it's made like 150 to 160 million, which isn't that much, but over the span of it being out has set different records. It was the first, second, and third highest grossing Indian film. And those are just intertwined with other films that came out that have since surpassed it, which is crazy for this happening in the same year alone. But I feel like these movies, this is a Telugu film specifically. I think I've seen a few Bollywood films, but it's like a mix of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Marvel. It, they're so unique and maybe everyone should experience a movie like this. It's a musical. It's an epic bro drama. It's a thriller. It's romance. It's everything all in one. It's action. Everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> <laughs> that is actually what it is. And it was doing so much in the first 20 minutes. It took... 90 minutes, which is half of this movie's runtime for me to finally get into it. And at that point, I was like, great, we could be over right now. But the movie kind of reset for act two. Parts are fun. Parts. Uh, it's a lot. It's an experience. And for people who like all of those elements, and I think for Marvel audiences, I think this would do really well. Three hours is a commitment. And maybe that's the problem with some viewers. But it is on Netflix. I'm so curious on what you guys would think about it. Like you saying that, I'm curious enough to check it out. And I know people have been raving about it this year. It's just not one that I've gotten around to. But I definitely want to make a point to. Maximalist stuff, like we mentioned with Lerman, is not usually my cup of tea. But I will go in with an open mind. I do want to see it. It's just one of those things where it's just such an endeavor, a three-hour movie. I just haven't found the right time for it. But it's something that I really do hope I get to. I'm really intrigued by it. And it is based on true stories. They like start the film saying all of this is fictional. No animals were harmed in the filming of this movie because they're all CG. But I think all the animals look really good, which could have been a big downfall for a movie like this that uses tigers and wolves and so many other creatures throughout. But I think it being based on a story of revolutionaries and the creators making up a world, this plot of where they intersect in Indian history, I think is really interesting. They make the colonizers completely two-dimensional characters as the worst people in the world. And yes, they are. But the dynamic between the character development of the main two guys and everybody else is just... There's such an expansive difference that it also is a little hard to get through. But I think overall, it has great elements. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. Our next category, which is our, which is our last category of movies, just miscellaneous films we've seen this summer, things that are on streaming platforms right now, a couple that are in theaters. So the one that was a big Sundance player was Cha-Cha Real Smooth. We have very different opinions about this, Nick and I do, but I think it is definitely worth checking out. This is Cooper Rafe's follow-up to Shithouse, which I actually really liked, despite the terrible title. Here, unfortunately, we have a film with another terrible title, but what did you think of Cha-Cha Real Smooth, Nick, and have you seen it, Ryan? 
No, I, I have not seen Cha-Cha Real Smith. I don't even think I've seen a trailer. The Apple TV problem. I think Rafe does a really good job with developing its characters and their relationships. And very similar to Shithouse, he does that here. Whether you think Dakota as a mom and this, he's supposed to be 22, even mm-hmm. if that works. If this relationship works, I completely loved the themes and like what they were trying to get at with this spark that they felt between them there was such a vulnerability to their characters and i think that relates to it has to relate to the script and how he wrote it but it really struck a chord with me and it felt very moving it didn't need to have a happy ending which i like you know it makes you kind of explore all of these things in your own life and I loved the family element and how Cooper Rafe's character, Andrew, worked with Dakota. Her name was Domino. Domino and her daughter, Lola. I thought it was a smart movie, and I enjoyed it. I feel like a lot of people really love this movie, so I, I do like recommend checking it out. But for me, it just feels sort of like a movie that would have been really big in 2002, specifically at Sundance. It sort of feels like if Garden State were made today, which I really do not like Garden State. And I know that that is a movie that a lot of people really enjoy. So if you like Garden State, you might be in the clear. But for me, it just it feels like one of those like college boy fantasy movies. And the writing is trying so hard to make this protagonist likable that it sort of feels just kind of empty to me at the end of the day. But I do think a majority of audiences will love this movie. I might just be bringing my own baggage and what I like and don't like to it. The performances are good, though. And in terms of Oscar prospects, I don't really think there are any. I don't think for this whole category there are many that will seep into the conversation. But I think they're more than just filler movies to see throughout the year. Definitely. Another movie that's on a streaming platform that actually isn't eligible for Oscars, even though it should be, and it didn't have a theatrical release, is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. This movie stars Emma Thompson and... I think it's a really successful character study of loneliness. It's very sex positive and it's a story we don't see on screen very often. It's a really good two-hander of a movie, Emma Thompson and Daryl McCormick. I would check this out and Emma Thompson does give my favorite performance in the what would be the best actress category all year. It's a very vulnerable, real performance that I wish we saw more of. Yeah, I think it's really hard to pull off a one-set, two-person film, and this does a really good job. It's very heavy with its screenplay, but I think that's where it succeeds as well. I absolutely loved Emma Thompson. She like continues to outdo herself, and she really does here. She gives one of the best final shots, final sequences that a character has ever given, especially this year. I loved her growth in this movie. And I think we can learn a lot from her character and what she goes through. And I think you mentioned Cha-Cha is on Apple. Good luck to you, Leo Grand is on Hulu. This next one, Watcher, I think is only streaming. But I did see this in a theater when it came out. Another horror movie that has no award prospect. But the cinematography was great. It is sort of the slow burn. And another movie, this is crazy, like back-to-back, with... Just an incredible, mind-blowing final shot. <laughs> Sophia, I really want you to see this. You're okay. going to love the ending. Some of the story is like very done over. 
It's about this girl who feels like she's being watched in an Eastern European country from a man in an apartment building across from theirs. And a lot of it is like her boyfriend gaslighting her into imagining all of this. And I didn't love that aspect of it, but there are some good jump scares. And I think when she takes things into her own hands, which she's doing a lot of the movie, that's when it gets really spooky. And I like screamed. We were in the front row. I screamed and like <laughs> nobody else in the theater did. I don't think I was like, am I like that? Into you should have brought right me, now? Nick, because we all know I'm probably the most animated <laughs> oh person God. in scary movies. <laughs> Ryan, one of my favorite memories of seeing a movie with you was when we saw The Conjuring 2 and the girls in front of us were cracking up because you would just like jump and scream the whole movie. <laughs> What what is the point of a scary movie if it's not exactly that? No, it really was one of my favorite movie-going experiences with you. No, I will watch Watcher, though. It looks like something I would like, and it has Scream Queen Micah Monroe in it, who's also in It Follows, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, the next two, I've seen these, but you guys haven't, but I really recommend both. The first is Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, which is just the sweetest, warmest, most delightful movie Go into it suspending all disbelief. This is just like <laughs> Leslie Manville plays the titular Mrs. Harris. And she is just like the trailer shows, just like the title says, she goes to Paris from London in this movie. And she goes because she's completely enamored with this Dior dress and she just has to have it. Has a great cast. Isabel Huppert is also in it. Um, Lucas Bravo from Emily in Paris, Ryan. So that's another reason for you to go. It feels like Emily in Paris meets Phantom Thread. That is very that, much the that's the vibe. That of the seems movie, like a movie which I like for Sophia. <laughs> yes, um, it's going to clean up at the AARP Movies for Grownups <laughs> Awards. So it's like a, a geriatric Emily in Paris. Yes, but it's just nice, like seeing Leslie Manville in a, a lead role and. I think that a lot of audiences will really enjoy it. It has really positive audience and critic scores. And the next one is Crimes of the Future, which I will not even check what Rotten Tomatoes says for this. The David Cronenberg dystopian film. I think that this movie is funnier than Thor Love and Thunder. Cronenberg is so good at humor and sort of subverting your expectations It would actually be an interesting double feature with Nope, just based on the nature of performance. And it's very bizarre, but it worked so well for me. It's not completely a body horror film. There are definitely body horror elements in it, but it's incredibly thoughtful in its ideas, in its execution. And it feels more like a noir film to me than a horror film. And I loved it. I thought it was great. I would definitely recommend seeing it. It is weird, though. So with any Cronenberg, you can expect that. But like the movie starts with a child eating a plastic trash can. So just be prepared for all sorts of bizarre images. But it's a good political commentary, commentary on our bodies. I think it's, yeah, like my top five of the year at this point. Oh, wow. That is high praise. Yeah. It's giving T10. It's better than T10, I think. Oh, interesting. It's... It's not as um, visceral and like thriller-like. Um, it's a bit slower. It's more of a slow burn. But, I mean, Julia Ducournau is so influenced by Cronenberg. So it would be a good pair. 
Nick, I'm curious what you would think of it. Ryan, it might be a step to Well, when you, when you said you won't look at the Rotten Tomatoes reviews, I'm assuming that's because you're assuming <laughs> that most people are not going to like this movie, but maybe some more of the uh, awards kind of crowd people would, would be more interested. Yeah, I don't think it has awards potential, but anytime a master filmmaker goes back and proves himself again, says, like, I've still got it, I'm interested. Yeah, I would love to see this. Well, that is our summer recap. There was a lot of movies. There's still a lot to come. Ryan, do you know of any that are coming in August that you really want to see? Um, You know what's coming in August is Uncharted on Netflix, so I'm pretty pumped for that. I don't think that's what you're actually asking, though. (laughs) It was supposed to come out in July, and I went and pulled it up on the day it was supposed to come out, and Netflix changed the release to August. This is the Tom Holland video game movie that I have been pumped for for months, but I, I will not pay for, but cannot wait to see. <laughs> but beyond that, I, I'm not aware of anything else. I, I am in the midst of a Lord of the Rings rewatch ahead of the Rings of Power TV show. So that is where I'm putting my movie watching efforts in the in the coming weeks. So not Bullet Train. Do you know I have seen is? trailers for Bullet Train. It looks terrible. Ryan, we have one last question for you. So... If you could give any of these movies that we talked about today an Oscar, Top Gun, what Top would Gun. it be? It's like no doubt. <laughs> I mean, I, it doesn't need to be Best Picture. It needs to at least be nominated for Best Picture. But I just Top Gun just deserves to be in that conversation at year end. It epitomizes to me what my Best Picture idea of what a movie is. Um, it was just so much fun, a complete blast at the movies, and um, I really hope that it does get some recognition at the Oscars. Ryan, thank you again for joining us. You'll be back, I'm sure. Thank you guys so much for having me. I always have a blast getting to talk about movies with you guys. If you guys want to check in on my Lord of the Rings uh, marathon, um, do a pod on that. I'm available. You guys can check with my assistant. We can set something up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you for coming, Ryan. We'll see you soon. And if there are any others that come up, let us know. Thanks, guys. Bye, Ryan. So we just have a little update about fall films and festival announcements that have happened so far, mostly with Venice because that full slate came out. And then from there, we kind of got some teasers with TIFF. So we have a lot of news. Like I said earlier, some films have been delayed until next year, but I am excited about a lot of these that are coming. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, Let's quickly start with Venice. We found out that Noah Baumbach's new film, White Noise, starring Adam Driver, Don Cheadle, Greta Gerwig, based on the postmodern novel by Don DeLillo, that's opening the festival, which is really big, I would say, because I think a lot of us thought that based on Baumbach and Netflix's relationship with New York Film Festival, that they would maybe, maybe have their paws on this one, but Venice got it first, which... That shows me confidence in this film by Netflix. And it also, I am just so, so, so curious about this movie because to me, this text is a major, major challenge to adapt for a film, especially for, I mean, for anybody. But Bombback is someone who I associate with original scripts. So this is an, a unique adaptation for him. And I'm so curious to see the choices that are made. The first still of this alone. I have to say is not what I was picturing when I thought of this movie. So I'm, I'm scared. (laughs) Also coming out at Venice, we have Bardo or False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. 
Tar, the Cape Blanchett, monumental picture by Todd Field, Blonde by Andrew Dominic, starring Ana de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. How do you feel about that trailer? Blonde is a complicated text for me. I will see it. There's a big part of me that thinks, like, we need to let Marilyn rest. Let's just leave Marilyn alone. <laughs> the trailer, though, looked really beautiful. So I'm, I'm curious about it visually. And I think it's, a, you know, it's important to note that this is based on the highly exploitative, highly fictional text by Joyce Carol Oates of the same name called Blonde. So this isn't your standard biopic that you think of. Like, this is an adaptation of a very thorny source material. Ana de Armas looks great. It's uncanny, I think, how much she looks like Marilyn. But yeah, there's a lot going into this that definitely gives me pause, for sure. The Tar trailer, on the other hand, my god, I cannot wait. It looks crazy, just from the weird teaser alone with the CGI smoke and then Kate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she looks phenomenal. We're also getting Florian Zeller's follow-up to the father called The Son, also with Anthony Hopkins, but also some other cast members that are being predicted for different acting categories. We have Vanessa Kirby and Hugh Jackman. Luca Guadagnino will also be coming to Venice, and Timothy Chalamet will be making his return, not for a huge blockbuster like Dune last year, but for Bones and All, and that's exactly what he looks like in these stills. Indeed. I'm excited for this, though. It's a, based on a, a book about cannibals, cannibal lovers. So that sounds mm-hmm. exciting to me. Um, I love when Guadagnino does genre. I really liked his Suspiria. So I'm I'm excited for this one. We're also getting Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inisherin. Everybody look up how to pronounce that. We will be saying it all season. We're getting Don't Worry Darling, Olivia Wilde's film. Interestingly, it's out of competition. So it won't be competing for the Golden Lion. And the movie I'm most excited for, Joanna Hogg's film, The Eternal Daughter, starring Tilda Swinton. I know this is maybe an unlikely pick for my most anticipated, but it just, it's right up my alley. Joanna Hogg is a filmmaker who doesn't miss for me, and I really love Tilda Swinton, as we've discussed multiple times on this show. So I'm very, very excited for that. We're also getting Aronofsky's next huge movie called The Whale, starring Brendan Fraser. I thought this might have been delayed, so I'm really excited for this. And for Sadie Sink and Hong Chao in this film. Some others, we have Alice Diop's next film, St. Omer. And out of competition, also we're getting Paul Schrader's Master Gardener and Ty West's Pearl, which is like a spinoff from his movie X. So the West cinematic universe is expanding. So that's kind of another just fun Mm -hmm. film to be premiering there. Yeah, I'm excited for that. I I liked X a lot. And the story about how he and Mia Goth came up with this idea for the prequel while they were shooting X is very intriguing. So I'm excited to see that. And then I would say we have really big news for TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And that news is that Steven Spielberg is going to the festival for the first time to premiere his autobiographical drama, The Fablemans. This, again... Speaking of like showing studios having confidence in their movies, The Fableman's going here for its world premiere is huge. It's a really big deal. The lineup for TIFF is amazing though. Like they have a really, mm-hmm. really good slate of 
movies we will definitely be keeping an eye on this year. They have some overlap from Venice, like The Banshees of Inisherin, The Whale. They have some movies that premiered at Cannes, like Broker from Kareda and Decision to Leave from Park Chan-wook. But then we also are getting Empire of Light, the new Sam Mendes movie, which is also an autobiographical drama set in a 1950s cinema starring Olivia Coleman. I think the movie I'm most excited to see here, there are two. Um, Women Talking, the Sarah Polly movie, which has its international premiere here, which tells me it's going to Telluride or New York Film Festival. Very excited for that. And also One Fine Morning, the new Mia Hansen Love movie starring Lea Seydoux that, is going, that was at Cannes, but will be at TIFF. Some other movies that we talked in our predictions episode that also will be premiering here. We have Gina Prince Blythewood's The Woman King with Viola Davis, mm-hmm. potential actress nominee. We also have All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a German adaptation starring Daniel Bruhl. I feel like this could be in for some technicals, depending on how this plays, only because it's a mostly German cast. I don't know if that's going to have like the Oscar spotlight that international films usually get but we're also getting ryan johnson's sequel glass onion a knives out mystery probably more of just a fun premiere but you never know knives Mm -hmm. out was in screenplay and then again yes from Cannes, we also had triangle of sadness by ruben ostland and another one i'm excited for is the menu by mark mylod with Ralph Fiennes and Anya Taylor-Joy, this like mega cast horror film that Mm -hmm. I didn't think had any potential, but premiering at a festival is kind of a cool way to go about it. Definitely. And I think just a funny one to keep an eye on, um, Bros is going to TIFF, the Billy Eichner movie that has its world premiere there. And I mean, we can just mention it briefly and not talk about awards. The greatest beer run ever, Peter Farrelly's. Mm Next film, starring Zac Efron, will also have its world premiere at TIFF. I know you're so excited to see that one. It's not a great title, and I have no (laughs) idea what it's about. It's about the greatest beer run ever. That's what it's about. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very excited for festival season. This always just is the best way to kick off the fall. Hearing about these new movies, building buzz. You know, seriously wanting to be at Venice, to be at TIFF, to be at Telluride. But we will both be at New York Film Festival um, at the end of September, early October. So you can definitely count on us for updates from that of just what it's like to be at that festival. It's always just such a fun time. Very, Mm. I don't know, it's just magical to be at Lincoln Center for the festival. Oh, yeah. It's my favorite thing every year. Can't wait for that slate. Some of those surprises. Of all of the movies... If you could pick one to see today that's on the like festival lineup list, what would it be? You can't say Killers of the Flower Moon because... <laughs> we also said that for our, that other we episode. We did, I know. <laughs> I'm going to say Empire of Light. I cannot wait for New Deacons and him with Olivia Coleman. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. When I sent you that still from the movie, and was like, this is crisp. Like it mm-hmm. just, it looks really beautiful just from the one shot alone, so... Yeah, that's a good one. I, hmm, it's hard. There are so many I'm excited for, but I think, you know what? This is rare for me because I I recently, you know, I've been very cynical about this movie and I recently said I'm not excited to see it, but I need to know what's going on in The Whale. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm so hit or miss with Aronofsky. Wow. When he opens his mouth to speak about a movie, I instantly want to mute whatever device I'm listening on. But I got. I have to know. I want to see the Brendan Fraser performance. I want to mm-hmm. know how out there it is. So my answer today is The Whale. Wow. That is not what I expected you to say. That's no. exciting. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be talking about the 2012 Oscar race, focusing on Argo, the Best Picture winner. We'll briefly do like a top five and talk about why Argo won and why Ben Affleck wasn't nominated for director. But this ties in really well with a special announcement we have coming, which we are very excited to share with you all. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Argo and to talk about Ben Affleck as a, you know, a character, as a a fixture, and why he was snubbed for Best Director, if we think he should have been nominated. The movies from that year, it's a very interesting year at the Oscars, and, you know, yeah, we've teased that we've had a lot of surprises coming, and this one, I think, is one that we've been talking about for, like, two years at this point, almost since the creation of the pod, where we've been thinking, like, how can we do this? How can we pull this off? We just have to kind of wait until we have enough listeners. So the announcement is coming very soon. Very excited for that. Thank you again to Ryan for joining us today. And thank you all for listening. If you like our show, please rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.